So it's been a few years back uh, since my mother <clears throat> had back surgery. Uh, she had some pain in her neck and some shooting pains down her arm, and turns out she had to have some corrective surgery to fix it. Um, and uh, I, it was relatively minor, but she needed to be in the hospital for a day or two. And I'll never forget going to see her uh, the morning after her surgery because she was so angry. I mean, mad as a hornet. And I stepped in, I was like, Mama, what's wrong? And she said, well, if I knew that I was going to feel this bad <laughs> after the surgery, I don't think I ever would have gotten it. And isn't that always the nature of surgery? Surgery is such where you always have to feel worse before you feel better. That's the way of things. Well, it turns out that that's a, there's a spiritual truth in that as well. Because as soon as you begin to say that I want to move in towards the presence of God, you suddenly find out that you're going to feel worse before you feel better. That's the path that we learned about last week. And it's very confusing for people who actually encounter Jesus for the very first time. You know, they'll have some sort of, um, I don't know, vague sort of sense of, uh, of maybe guilt feelings or, or some kind of a, a need for something fulfillment in their hearts. And they start to approach Jesus. But as soon as they do, it's as if the world falls away from underneath them because of what they find about the need of God's holiness to impact us with our need so that we know it even better. So if you ever want to move from a religion that's kind of, from a Christianity that's more driven by superstition uh, into something that's authentic, or if you ever want to move from a Christianity that's about moralism and just sort of like trying to get yourself to do right things, it's going to go through this path. You have to take the bad news. And as it turns out in the passage that True just read, we have a great description of the mental and spiritual state that someone experiences when they go through this. And it's right there in verse 9. There you have King David sort of describing himself of where he is. And look what it says. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You see what he's saying? David gets it. <laughs> the one thing I need the most to be and live and exist in the presence of God, I can't have it. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And so he's unwilling to, uh, to bring it back. Can you imagine the dejectedness that David must have felt? Can you imagine the embarrassment that he must have felt after putting on this whole big thing, his first official act as king, and it ends in the death of Uzzah? Look, here's the deal. It's almost, it, it's a hard and difficult truth that God uses the catastrophes in our lives the heartbreaks in our lives, to bring us to this knowledge that actually when it comes to it, you're worse than you think you are. That we are weaker than we thought we were. That we're more flawed than we thought we were. That we are more unacceptable than we thought that we were. It moves us towards that. I, I can remember it for 25 years in campus ministry, I would encounter students. After I would interact with them, my staff and I would say, you know, I... I feel like that student just needs a storm. Why? Because God has to lead them in to this knowledge of coming to the end of themselves. And that's where David is at this moment. But here's the deal. John Newton said very clearly, he said, you know, no one ever learned that they were a sinner by being told. 
You have to experience it. You've got to go through the disaster for yourself. But what I want to encourage you is, is not to fight that feeling. Don't push away from that sensation. Because oftentimes, it's you're at the very cusp of getting some very, very good news. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because David thought that in order to get the presence of God into his life, that it was all going to be roses, but suddenly he's been given a severe mercy like we talked about last week. But God was ready to show him now, now that he's in an entirely different frame of mind, that actually the presence of God is something that I want you to have. And it's a joy as you do. So David's path, David's path is still our path. The same journey that he took, we have to take ourselves. And so I want to look at that this morning simply by asking two questions. Number one, How did David enter in to the presence of God? And then secondly, how can we enter into the presence of God? Just those two questions this morning as we dive into it. First of all, how did David enter in? Well, I kind of think it's a tragedy uh, that for a lot of people, especially those on the outside of the Christian faith, um, their perception of the way Christians sort of take in their life is that it's kind of a, a mildly aggravated depression. You know, well, you know. I mean, I'm a Christian, uh, and so I usually stay fairly dour and into myself. I'm a little depressed most of the time. I certainly don't assert myself in anyone's life. <laughs> That's not God's intention for the Christian life. Um, God's intention for his covenant people is not to walk around in defeat, but rather to sort of move into the presence of God. The very meaning of the Ark of the Covenant is that we can go in. God would end up saying to Moses when he built the first tabernacle, I will meet with you over the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So the way that God showed him that he just didn't want him to go home and sulk for the rest of his life or the rest of his reign is what happens in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, honestly, I think this is the only comedy in this rather tragic story that we've read. Because you've had this huge parade, we're bringing the ark up, suddenly it stumbles, Uzzah grabs it, Uzzah dies, the screams start, people panic, David is depressed, the ark of the Lord is never going to come to me, what are we going to do with this thing? I know, give it to Obed-Edom. And he's got to be thinking, "Um, actually, you guys could have it if you wanted it, maybe we could find somebody else. But the ark actually goes to Obed-Edom's house. But here's the thing. Rather than being a dangerous curse to his house, everything starts going right for Obed-Edom. Everything. Uh, his kids suddenly get incredibly well-behaved. Uh, his investments you know, soar, right? Uh, uh, his crops produce more than he ever thought that they could. Everything's going well. God blesses Obed-Edom and his house. And more importantly, he makes sure that David hears about it. He wants for David to know that it is my intention to bless you. I want and long to have fellowship with you, David. But it has to be on my terms. It has to be. And so in this parallel story that happens in 1 Chronicles chapter 15... Uh, we find out exactly what it is that David does. And clearly what he does is he goes back and he searches through the books of the law. He does his research over again. And again, it's impossible to sort of get specifically into David's mind about what he was doing here. But I'd like to believe that he went back and began to study the tabernacle and figure out exactly what this, this Ark of the Covenant really meant. 
And of course, we looked at this last fall in our look through Exodus as we talked about the importance of this uh, symbolic uh, uh, furniture that God asked for his people to place. And if you'll remember in your mind's eye the, the, the outlay of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant was very much in the back. That was the destination in the back of the worship tent. But as you walked through the outer gates of the tabernacle, the very first piece of furniture that you encountered was an altar. In other words, David knows where he wants to be. He wants to be back there. He wants to be at the ark. But he suddenly realizes that you cannot get to that without going through a place of death. Without encountering a place of blood. A place of sacrifice. But also a place of, of substitution. A place of, of atonement. And it is as if the lights in David's heart come on. Suddenly he gets it. And bravely, he decides that he's going to put on another parade. And so he combines what he found out about what he experienced with Uzzah with what he's just discovered in Obed-Edom, and he decides to put the record right. So what does he do? He starts over. The Chronicles account tells us that he actually does go and get the Levites, the, the, the tribe that was only supposed to handle and transport the ark. He goes and gets them. And he has them go through all of their consecration rituals that God had asked them to back in the book of Exodus. The second thing that he does is he starts to make his way up to the Temple Mount, which was up on a hill there in Mount Zion. And you see something really weird in verse 13. Look what it says. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Hey, I hope you've heard me say that when you're studying the Bible, one of the things that you need to sort of, that ought to jump out you, <clears throat> at you are what we might call weird details, okay? That's a weird detail. Why was it important that David only took six steps before he stopped and had a sacrifice with the parade? I think the answer, and I found this at one commentator had said, is that for a Jewish person, numbers are very significant. You've heard me say this before too. Well, the number seven is, in the Hebrew mind, almost like a whole number. It's a number of wholeness and completion, a number of perfection. So do you see, it's almost as if David is saying, you know what? We are not going to make any real progress on this journey until we pause and remember the only thing that makes this journey possible. Stop. We're doing another sacrifice. Can you imagine the bloody trail that must have led up whatever street they were get, uh, moving through as they headed towards the Temple Mount, sacrifice after sacrifice? And of course, the type of offerings that he, that he was doing are what are known as burnt offerings. A burnt offering was a very specific kind of offering that came to the people of Israel, where you would take the animal... And the person who was preparing the sacrifice would lay his hands on the head of the animal. The meaning of that symbolic action was to say, I am identifying with this animal. This creature is going to bear the weight of my sin. God is going to treat this creature as if, or like unto, <laughs> they are me. There was a transference. There was an identification. This will be utterly, utterly destroyed so that I don't have to. 
There was identification with the sacrifice. You know, it reminds me a lot of a story from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. In Numbers 21, we have a story of the people of Israel as they're journeying towards the promised land, getting rebellious again, (laughs) as they are wont to do. And on their way, God decides that he's going to bring judgment by allowing snakes to enter the camp. Remember this story? The snakes come and invade the camp. They begin to bite the people. People are dying in droves. And so Moses, as he also is wont to do, goes before the Lord to plead on their behalf. Well, God tells him that he's going to bring a reprieve from the snakes, but there's something that he wants him to do first. He says, I want you to take a large, tall pole, Moses, and around the top of it, I want you to fashion and wrap a bronze snake. And I want you to take that tall snake up on that pole, and I want you to set it up at the front of the camp. And just tell the people that if they would just look at the snake, they would instantly be healed. And that, of course, is precisely what happens. And God brings this amazing salvation in the hearts and minds and lives of the people uh, um, uh, just by looking at the snake. Now, what's the story there? What's the meaning of that right there? Don't you find it interesting? And it's funny, I never thought about this until I was studying it years ago. But I remember thinking this was strange even reading as a child. Why a snake? Why is it that the Jewish people were told to look up and identify with the very thing that was their problem? The snakes were their problem, yet they're told to look up at a snake. In other words, it's almost as if God is saying to them, what I need you to understand is that the poison that is pumping through your veins is nothing compared to the poison that is pumping through your hearts. And until you look up and realize that one must bear that and identify with that and see that it would bear your curse, then there can be no hope of you and I having presence, having a presence together, being in the same fellowship with one another. And David as he's looking at it and sees the sacrifices and understands the meaning of the ark, he gets it. And in that moment, though he's looking through a glass darkly, as it were, we believe that David saw Jesus. He saw what Jesus was going to become on his behalf, even though it was through a glass darkly. That's how David entered in, because he understood the absolute necessity of sacrifice. Okay, so that leaves the question. That's how David entered in. How can we enter in? You know, I think this is a question for us to, to, to pose to all of ourselves, to make this morning worth it. Have you entered through David's path? Have you entered in? Have you discovered what David discovered? Because if you're going to, I think there's going to be two things that have to happen. If you're going to enter in the way in which David did, you're going to first of all have to identify with Jesus. And secondly, you're going to have to put your faith in him. And I want to unpack that in the couple minutes that we have remaining this morning. First of all, we have to identify with Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews would say, look, the blood of bulls and goats, that never actually atoned for anybody. But the sacrifice of Jesus, once for all, that's the only thing that can bring true salvation. In other words, what we have to say in the midst of this is say the only possible way The only way that I will get to the presence of God that two weeks ago we said is the only thing that I can really have to survive this life 
and the next. The only way to that is going to be through the knowledge and identification of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. There is no knowing God without knowing Jesus. And as obvious as this sounds, <laughs> you, 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 you got to recognize that it's entirely possible to have information about Jesus, but still be far from him. It is possible to know that Jesus is a substitute, but do you see him as your substitute? Look, the identification that we have with Christ at the cross is so profound that Christ has to carry our very identity with him on the cross. We have to look to him just like those Israelites looked up at the snake. The dynamics that were in place between the Jews looking up at the snake must be true of us as we spiritually and, and, and in our imaginations look to Jesus. What does that mean? Because don't you understand that the cross screams to us the two things that we need. The cross is screaming, I am holy, says God. What kind of holiness would cause the death of the Son of God? But at the very same time, it screams the boundlessness of the grace of God. What kind of grace would allow his son to be killed on his people's behalf? And that's the reason why when, when Jesus dies on the cross, the most important thing that happens is the curtain in the temple miraculously splits from top to bottom. Showing what? Now God is coming out. The presence of God has been released through what Jesus did. So how do we do that? I think this is the way. You begin to name your sin in other words, you begin to start to work through your life and say, what is the one thing that either prior to my coming to Christ or still seems to beleaguer me after my coming to Christ? What is the one thing that I think about, man, if I could just get rid of that, if that wasn't true of me, I would so fully sense the presence and grace of God. Name it. What is it? Because until you see, identify with Jesus as being that for you, it's not going to mean anything to you that he died and rose again. Do you follow this logic? <laughs> In other words, until I look up at Jesus and see him being lust, until I see him being pride, hatred, jealousy, until I see him being gossip, until I see Jesus being racism, until I see Jesus being sexist, until I see him being heartless and loveless, it will never mean anything that God killed him for it. And every time I would have this conversation with students, they would stop me and say, this sounds blasphemous. I'm like, yes. First of all, notice the Bible says that he, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Did not say to be sinful for us. Jesus was never sinful, but Jesus became sin in that God said, I'm going to treat my son as if he had done all the things that you've been doing from the very beginning of your life until now. Oh, and by the way, that you'll ever commit from here to your death. <laughs> and I'm going to treat him the way in which you should be treated. And in that way, you have identified with him. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said it this way, this is a singular consolation for all Christians. So to clothe Christ in our sins, <laughs> to wrap him 
in my sins and your sins. And so behold him, that's how Luther says it, to behold him bearing all of our iniquities. Our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner who ate of the fruit of the tree in the garden, the thief who hung upon the cross, and the person who considered all kinds of sins, and see thou therefore that you pay and satisfy for all of them. That's how we identify with him. We find out what it is that is plaguing me and I wrap him, I wrap Jesus in Jesus with what's plaguing me. And all of a sudden when you find out when, that his God has forsaken him, you realize he's bearing your forsakenness. That's how we identify with Jesus. Only until you see him in your heart's imagination can we identify him. And that brings me to the last point of what it means to put our faith in him. Now you're ready. <laughs> because believing means that Christ becomes your life. He becomes the only thing that you really can be certain about. And because He is your life, He's your ground of faith. And good grief. If there was ever a topic that I found college students completely befuddled by, it was the idea of faith. What does it mean to believe? I just don't know if, um, if I'm believing right. What happens is we get so preoccupied with the nature of faith, we forget about the object of faith, which is really what it's supposed to be focused on. I think we can say at least two things. First of all, we know that faith is not a work. Faith is not the work that we do to sort of get to heaven. Oftentimes I would speak to college students and I would say, you know, tell me, uh, you grew up in church. I certainly did. Really, so how are you doing spiritually speaking? For 25 years, I can tell you that I can almost count on both hands after hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations with college students. Then when I asked them about how they were doing spiritually, I would get a youth group, as wonderful as that is, uh, struggle with quiet times, church attendance. Can I tell you how rarely I ever like, heard the name Jesus? <laughs> how is that possible? What is it that we are thinking in our midst this is about? <laughs> because if somewhere in the midst of that conversation, it's not, Jesus is not somewhere in the conversation. Didn't I miss it? And people are like, oh, I guess you know, a preacher up there wants us to have all our theological ducks in a row before he asks us a question about where we are spiritually. No, I'm not. I feel like I just long for a time when someone says, you know, Les, how are you doing? That the answer would, that would come out of me was like, well, you know, I have some good days, I have some bad days, but, but I heard Jesus took care of all that. That's it. <laughs> That's what it means to place one's faith in Jesus because faith is not something that I conjure up so that I have enough. It's the means through which it comes to me. Our, our own denominational confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says this, that faith is the instrument of salvation. It's not the means or the cause of salvation. You've heard me say that it's a little bit like an, like an IV, an intravenous needle, right? Everybody's born with one. Everybody has this mechanism that, you, that from the beginning of your birth, you hook up to something. It's your life. It's your glue. It's that thing that you pride yourself upon. And Jesus is saying, yes, all those things are necessary, but until I am the ultimate source of your life, the one true center of where your spiritual IV is connected to. 
you don't understand what faith means. And for that reason, faith always leads us into a transformed life. Once that faith comes, what, what Luther would say is, salvation is by faith alone, but it is not by a faith that is alone. And now don't you understand why that's a matter of course? Of course. <laughs> Once I shift from making my life my career to actually being the grace of Jesus in the gospel, how can I not, be, how can I not change? That the source of what I'm looking at has, has shifted. But what I want to make the point is, is that order is everything. Grace first, then a life of grace. Acceptance first, then transformation. Change of status before change of character. Christianity, it's everything. More about that next week. In closing, I came across a really interesting study done by some uh, psychologists about 16 years ago. Because they wanted to see whether the body would respond not only to, to like actual physical stimulus, but from the imagination. So they put people in these sort of uh, encased rooms, and they had an infrared pupil tracker. Seriously, this is an amazing experiment. Pupil tracker. And what they would do is they would ask the subjects to imagine a bright, sunny beach. Just imagine it. Get a very vivid mental picture of a bright, sunny beach. You know what their pupils would do? They, 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 would, they would close up, just like they were outside. Then they would look and say, now I want you to imagine that you're in a very dark, sort of enclosed room. You know what their pupils would do? They would open up. But the situation in the room stayed exactly the same. What was the point? In our imaginations, our bodies will follow our imaginations. That's what we're saying. Once Jesus is fixed in the center of my imagination, change begins to happen. There's a response one of my favorite theologians presently working is James K.A. Smith. He said that during the Enlightened, man became known as Homo sapiens, which in Latin means uh, um, like one who thinks. But he said, actually, I think that's not the way it should go. We actually should be Homo liturgicus, like one who worships. That's who you are. That's what drives us. And when all of a sudden Jesus gets held up, just like King David, we walk into his presence and he becomes everything. That's the good news in the Ark of the Covenant. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you bring us through that same transformation so that we might know it similarly? We need to see you. Father, we, we oftentimes wonder what it means to see you in context like we're in. How do we do that? How do we access you? We pray that we would see in what you did with King David and the house of Obed-Eden the Gittite that you would bring us into that. Would you do that this morning? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.